I'm Jessica Albright. Um, I'm Ellen Albright. I'm Chris Albright. We all live in East Palestine, Ohio, where almost a year ago there we had a tragic and toxic train derailment. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. Brought to you in partnership with In These Times Magazine and The Real News Network, produced by Jules Taylor, and made possible by the support of listeners like you. My name is Maximilian Alvarez, and as you guys may be able to tell, uh, I am a little under the weather right now. I got myself a cold. Your boy caught a cold. Um, So I'm going to spare you guys the the full introduction, but you you guys know the drill. Please, please uh, support us on Patreon. Uh, Leave us positive reviews of the show on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Share these episodes with your friends, your family members, your coworkers, and everyone you you know help us get these stories out there and thank you to everyone out there who is already supporting us we love you guys so as you heard um we've got some friends of the show back on the show uh we've got the great albright family from uh, east palestine ohio whom you guys will remember from the live show that we did uh it was a live show that i had the honor of hosting uh at the harvard law school as as part of their inaugural uh series of systemic justice teach-ins and and i was there along with some other incredible folks, including Chris and Jessica. Um, We were there for a a teaching called Storytelling for Justice, East Palestine. And uh, we had a full day with Professor John Hansen, uh, his incredible, uh, you know, team over there, Simone Unwala, Haley Florsham, Samantha Perry, Jacenia Class, everyone over there is so great. They're doing such cool work. And it was really, really cool to see, you know, folks in, in the in academia, in the ivory tower, right, really, really uh, getting with it and, and having the Albrights out, focusing on East Palestine, asking the questions that need to be asked, talking about uh, what we can all do to help and make sure that catastrophes like the Norfolk Southern train derailment that derailed uh, so many people's lives, uh, including Chris and Jessica's, and derailed an entire community on February 3rd of this year. You guys know the story of the derailment. Uh, We have talked about it. We have covered it extensively on this show at the Real News Network, my segment on breaking points, and you've been no doubt reading about it uh, all over the place for the past, uh, you know, year, as Chris said. And, uh, you know, if you guys haven't already, I highly recommend you go back and check out that live show that I got to do with Chris and Jessica at Harvard. Um, because I thought it was a really, really powerful conversation, uh, and I was so honored to, to, to have that conversation with them, and I was so grateful to them for, for being so open and vulnerable and talking so powerfully and sharing their story so uh, o- openly and truthfully with, with everyone there. I think everyone there was so affected by it. 
And, you know, we were obviously talking about some really, really heavy stuff. Uh, and that heavy stuff has not gone away. I want to be very clear about that. The, the nightmare um, that began on February 3rd of this year in, is, is, is still very much not over, right? The media may have moved on. Norfolk Southern may have, you know, like <laughs> gotten away without really any accountability. Um, but the nightmare for the people of East Palestine is not over, right? And life is forever changed. Life goes on. Life is still worth living beautiful things still happen hockey games still happen jobs still happen but life will never be the same so we cannot forget about them and we cannot um sit back and and, and you know just give up on the fight to hold Norfolk Southern accountable, to hold our government accountable for what they have done and, and especially for what they have not done for the people of East Palestine. So um, I say all that as a preamble. Because, you know, we, we've, we've had so many conversations where we've talked about the derailment itself. We've talked about what caused it. We've talked about what could have prevented it. We've talked about with, with Chris and Jessica and many of their uh, fellow <clears throat> East Palestinians, um, like we've talked about what life has been like since the derailment. But when we were, you know, sitting and talking after the live show in Harvard that that Chris and Jessica and I did back in September, you know, we got to talking about how it would be really nice to have them back on the show and do like a proper working people style interview where we could just sort of talk uh, in greater depth about them and their lives and their backstories and all the parts about them that we don't get to talk about when we are talking about this tragedy that has befallen them and their family and their community. So that's what we're going to do today. I wanted to have the Albrights back on. Uh, we will talk about, you know, like what's been going on with them and in East Palestine uh, since we did that live show back in September. So don't worry, we will talk about that uh, in the second half of this episode. Um, but yeah, to to kick things off, I really just kind of want to take a nice big step back, right? And let's get to know each other a little bit more here, right? Let's, let's not talk about depressing stuff for one, one quick second, uh, because you guys are such lovely people. You, you have such a lovely family and like, there's so much more that I want people to know about you. And so I'm super grateful for y'all to y'all for sitting down with me and uh, doing this. And I wanted, yeah, just kind of start the way that I normally do when I'm having like one-on-one -on -one conversations with workers is like, yeah, tell me a little bit about uh, where you're from. Now, uh, if I recall correctly, one of you is from East Palestine. The other is not. Well, we both actually were born and raised in Pennsylvania. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I moved to East Palestine a lot sooner than he did. That's that's what I meant. To, yeah, that's yeah. what I was misremembering. Okay, so yeah. Jess was living there a lot longer. Yeah, uh, yes. that's that's what I meant. Okay, February will be twenty years that I've been here. Sorry, I didn't mean I didn't mean to blow up your spot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell me about that. Tell me about the the paths, the winding paths that led you both to come to to East Palestine. Well, I came here first. Um, I was born and raised in PA um, until about the age of sixteen. Then I moved to Ohio. Um, I was living in a nearby town called Lisbon. Um, I lived there for eight years, I believe it was, and then wanted to move closer to the Pennsylvania border since that's where all my family was. Uh, I was starting a family at that point. So um, we settled in East Palestine because it's right at the Pennsylvania border, but the less expensive side of the line. <laughs> so housing is a lot less expensive. Gas is a lot cheaper. 
um, taxes are a lot lower. So um, settled here with my then nine month old and my ex-husband and kind of put down roots what was supposed to be temporarily. And almost 20 years later, I'm still here. That's the thing about roots, right? Yeah. <laughs> they stay. <laughs> they stay. <laughs> well, and and um, growing up in, in PA, did you have um, a big family? So you mentioned that, that you moved uh, to be closer to, to your family. No, I have a pretty small family. Um, I have, well, my mom has passed on, uh, my dad and my sister. That's pretty much about it. My sister and I are very, very close. Um, I... My two older kids are now 20 and 18, and her kids are soon to be 20 and 17. And she and her husband worked full time, and I stayed home and raised the four children for the most part. Okay, so now I got a fun question for you, though. (laughs) Because we, because we're sitting here with one of your adorable children, uh-huh. <laughs> and like, <Yeah. laughs> and before we got rolling, you know, there was some, uh, there was some some hijinks going on in off off camera. So I know that uh, uh-huh. people, people are running. Yeah, kids are kids are running around. It's, it's like late at night, but they don't know that, right? So, right. so that's what I want to ask: is um, do you see? Do you see your for, your younger self and then were you like the loud, rambunctious, like running around or were you more the kind of quiet, reserved? What kind of what kind of kid was was Jessica? Um, I think a little bit of a mix. Oh, if no. we were out in public. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about a mix. Yeah. Chris is like, eh, no, Vito. <laughs> you didn't know me when I was little. Yes, I did. I thought you guys went to the same school. Not real little. I thought you guys went to the same school. No, we didn't go to the same school. Oh. Then how Oh. Oh. <laughs> some, some, uh, some, <laughs> some dots are being connected in real time here. <laughs> yeah. All right. Remembering her story. Very, very quickly. I, 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 this should be brought up on here, but. Oh, we don't, have to, we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. <laughs> okay. Well, then we won't. We yeah. won't. So we, can, anyhow, we, can, we can actually cut that little part little, out. I was shy and reserved and clung to my mother's leg and um yeah, that, that was pretty much my personality as I hit preteen and teenage years it depended on where I was because in school I was very shy very quiet didn't socialize very much but outside of school my friends all went to a different school district because I lived close to a bordering uh school district so all of my friends went to the neighboring school district so outside of school with them, I was much more wild and crazy and rambunctious. She used to come to my house to party. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a fairy tale. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right, Mr. Man, I'm bringing you in here. Tell me more about that. <laughs> Tell me about where you grew up. I Well, my childhood, um, my parents grew up when I was five. My mother grew up in a town called Beaver Falls, or not, I grew up in, where you know, there, and my dad was in Ugali. <clears throat> so I had a very big mix of how I grew up. My dad was very loose. My dad was, do what you want to do, have fun. You're a kid, you're a guy, do what you want to do. My mom said, you will be in this house when the streetlights came on. It was a childhood that I loved. 
because I had the most, uh, the best of both worlds on on everything I did. My dad's house, I could have fun. My mom's house, I had to be disciplined. So it was really good. But yeah, I've known I've known her since she was probably six, seven. I don't know. I don't know. I think I was older than that. Oh, take me back, baby. I want to hear this. <laughs> no, you don't. It's a very small town. It's just so wild to think of that, right? It's like, you know, that, that you know, your paths could cross as like little kids. And then mm. decades later, you're married and have kids. And it's just like, man, that's so, that's so wild to think. Well, so it is a, a funny story. Um like I said, when he went to his dad's on the weekends, that was in New Galley. That's um, where I grew up, out in the country. Um, how far apart would you say? Her? We, a mile. About mile a mile or so half, apart. Maybe, yeah. Whatever. It wasn't far. Yeah. So I grew up in a trailer park. Um, very low income. Um, but we had a lot of fun. Um, I spent a lot of time out in the woods exploring and just getting dirty and being a kid because you know back then we didn't have all the technology to bury our noses into so you know i was out digging in the dirt and exploring the woods and doing those things and then as we got a little bit older we explored underage options <laughs> to celebrate our weekends <laughs> as one does yes, yes you know, at my house drinking in a cornfield and <laughs> Doing all those troublemaker things that you do in a small town on the weekend. Um, we actually got reconnected. Well, he he actually dated my sister back in the day um, when he was about 14, 15, somewhere in that age oh. range. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I saw the eyebrows go up. <laughs> yeah. And I dated his oh. stepbrother. <laughs> it's me and your daughter. We just like locked eyes. We're like, oh, shit. Yes, we did. Yeah. Yeah. So he dated my sister. I dated his stepbrother. But yes. again, we were like, you know, sixth grade, ninth grade, because we're four years apart. So yeah, it was, it was. <sighs> A long time ago. It's a, that's a cute story now. Yeah, <laughs> that's not like, it, it gets a little bit better. <laughs> I always joke that it's a small town and you have to recycle. <laughs> <laughs> recycle or share. <laughs> so exactly. I was I was a furniture salesman for 21 plus years. And uh that's how we got reconnected. Yeah, we went into the store. My best friend texted me and said, I need to go get a new couch. Do you want to come help me pick one out? And so I did, and um, when we walked into the store, she said, oh, you know who that is, don't you? And I said, no. And she said, well, that's Chris Albright. And my first reaction was, oh, he let himself go. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was real shaggy, had a really long beard, his hair was all scraggly and grown out, like down to his shoulder. He did not look good. <laughs> I still don't, but... <laughs> nah, my man, you clean up nice. What you talking about? <laughs> but yeah, I can imagine if you were like going full wizard vibes, you know, that might yeah. not yeah, it, it, it wasn't a good attract look. the ladies. It was not a good yeah. look. <laughs> but here we are. And here you are. I mean. <laughs> well, just one more question on the small town thing, though. Because um, I'm curious. 
as someone who grew up in Orange County, Southern California. Very much the opposite of a small town. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and like in Orange County in itself, I've, I've talked about this many times. It's 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 a very diverse place. It's it's not just like what the the rich people on the go- on the coast, you know, like are doing like the TV shows like it's it's a really, you know, racially diverse, class diverse, geographically diverse place that also has just like so many cool different little cities and, and areas. So there's a lot going on in Orange County that that they don't get credit. For it. But the point being is that the entire surround that I grew up in is just like an endless city, basically. It's an endless grid from the from the ocean to the mountains. So again, not small town, but I used to like my brothers and I, we were really into like horror and like scary stories. And I feel like most of the scary stories we would tell uh, took place in where you guys grew up. So, yes, like, probably. so, like, <laughs> I know we're we're getting into the Christmas season, but I, uh, but I, I can't help myself as a as a as a Halloween person. Like, did when you were out in the woods, did you guys have like like specific like uh, legends? They're like scary stories oh, or God, like yes. parts of town. Oh my that were, God! Yeah. Yes, actually, we actually have a local. Um, What'd you say? What'd you call No Face? Oh, Charlie No Face. Yeah. Have you ever heard about Charlie No Face? Charlie No Face? He's he's a nationally known story. He's from. He was like right down the road. We, my dad, like hung out with Charlie No Face. He was a real person. Yeah. Yeah. There was there was a whole story, whole backstory for him. Okay, so for the for the uninitiated listeners, <laughs> obviously I know who Charlie No Face is, but for the for the cavemen listening to this who don't, <laughs> talk to us about that. Um, uh, my dad used to tell me stories about Charlie No Face. He used to tell me a whole bunch of stories about Charlie No Face, and there's a road not far from here. I mean, I could walk to it. It was Cobble Galley Road, and. Charlie No Face used to walk that road, and a lot of people used to be mean to him. My dad used to like stop and offer him beers. Um, he got burnt, and electrical. It was a, it was electrical, but I'm trying to think of what was um um uh, those uh, poles out there. Yeah, and she knows. <laughs> She doesn't want to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, even she, uh, yeah, apparently I'm like uh, way behind on the legend of Charlie No Face. He used to, he got burnt on an electrical pole. Um, something happened. I could look it up. You could look it up. Anybody could look it up. I could look it up. But he used to, it, like his whole face got burnt. And because of that, he would not walk or be seen in public, you know, at that time. But he'd walk late at night. And people would stop. Some people were mean. Some people weren't. Um, I like I said, I know my 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 dad used to stop and offer him a beer, give him a ride, you know, stuff like that. But yeah, there there's Oh, but I can imagine like a legend, <laughs> like a legend building and all the sort of hearsay and stuff like that. Like this, that's a real like that's a real kind of like novel type situation, right? Because they've if you're... done like movies on him and documentaries and things like that. But yeah, he's definitely a real person. Wow, that's wild. I mean like 
But again, yeah, just just like shows that like if someone doesn't know right and has maybe like heard the scary stories and i mean you see anyone walking at night you're gonna get freaked out um and but then there's 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 always more behind it so that's you really see really him walking at night it's a whole different thing because he looked a little different <laughs> yeah, a little different he looked a lot different he you know yeah yeah he got um electrocuted by electrocuted man that's wild. So see, like, yeah, like we, like, and and now that I'm in Baltimore, I get to hear about some of those sort of, uh, like regional legends and urban legends and real stories like this as well. And I mean, I guess in in Los Angeles in SoCal, we had like, I mean, this is probably not appropriate, but we we just had like a lot of like serial killers <laughs> to ten like oh, yeah. stuff we like have that. like people who got burned up. You got serial killers. So. Yes. Yeah, so, so there you go. <laughs> but, okay. So I just I had to ask because again I'm like I always love imagining what it would be like for me and my brothers growing up in a setting that was just so different from what we actually grew up with. And so like since we were always telling scary stories and trying to creep each other out, like I can imagine, I can picture us kind of yeah like over there in the camping out trying to spook each other and and uh bringing up all these all these stories, scary stories of Charlie No Face and others and the Mothman and what have you. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> Right? <laughs> That's one of my, I love that movie. What about the Candyman? Candyman? Candyman's creepy too, baby. Like that's that's that that one's in Chicago. I used to live there. So like um anyway. I don't want to get us too far, Phil, because I can we, I can talk about I can talk about cryptids and scary stories, <laughs> right? Um but so okay, so then you guys reconnected. Um and like then tell me tell me about what happened there. Tell me about like building a life together in East Palestine. What you what you guys do for a living? Because we, we talked about that a little bit in the live show, but obviously we didn't get to kind of go deep into it. So let's 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 go deep into it. Well, um, me, I'm a gas pipeliner. I, I go out. I dig the gas line up i find the gas line i i eat the gas line <laughs> do a lot of things <laughs> i can't let you <laughs> bring go to bed no this is this is live this is live working people listeners you guys are getting a behind the scenes look <laughs> The bad thing is, though, is at, at this point in time, I don't know if I have a job right now. All right, let, 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 we'll get real now. I, I don't know if I have a job right now. I'm not sure because the last time we had any communication was seven, eight months ago, something like that. I, I'm not sure. So I don't know if I still have a job right now. And and that's a very bad feeling for me. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, I have not worked because I have a heart condition. My heart condition may or may not have been brought on by the trainer mail derailment. Nobody has been able to say 
one way or the other. So, but what we do know is that it was not a condition affecting you before February 3rd. Absolutely. Exactly. I was 100% fine before December 3rd. <clears throat> um, I was a very healthy, active, person before that I, I was all about work you know um, I am a middle aged man and what you do as a middle aged man as a father is you take care of your family you provide for your family you do what you got to do for your family and I have not worked since April 13th yeah well tell me tell me about before this like like because you 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 mentioned that you'd worked there for for a long time and that you you know you developed a really you know uh refined and specialized like set of skills and knowledge tell tell us tell us a little more about what that work was like before all of this horrible stuff happened with the train derailment. Like, what was it like um, going to work for you? Uh, Jess, what was it like, you know, having him do that work? And what was it like doing the work that, all the work that you're doing? And you guys are also doing this while going to, like, 10 different hockey games and running all over the place. So, yeah, just just tell me more about, like, the, the, the typical days and weeks uh, for you guys as working people and as a family before all the train derailment. My job, um, I would start at seven in the morning and I would get done when the job got done. <clears throat> we did not have an end time. Um, my job is a very physical one. Um, it, it, it was a very demanding job. Like before I started doing the job I'm at now, I was a furniture salesperson. When I got to a gas pipeliner, um, I made a lot more money. I had better benefits. I had better vacation. I had a lot of things that were a whole lot better. And I'd wake up at 4.30 in the morning. I would go out. I would do my job. And sometimes I would get home by noon. And sometimes I would get home by 8, 9 o'clock at night. That's how my job was. But I liked my job. I, I really did <clears throat> a whole lot. I really did like my job. Good. <laughs> Go ahead, you take over. Yeah. Yes. Uh, my job is a lot less physically demanding. Um, so I work full time as my title is a program specialist. I'm basically a case manager. Um, I work with high school age students from like age 15 up to 22, um, kids with IEPs and special needs. 
Um, they come to us instead of going to school for the day, and we do vocational training, job skills, life skills, um, social skills, all that stuff that they need um, to help them once they graduate. Um, I would leave here. I, my shift is 7.30 to 3.30 at that job. Um, I love it. Um, put myself through school. It took me a very long time to get my degree, but, um, you know, I was raising kids and doing all the things while I was working on that degree. I was a non-traditional student. Didn't graduate with my bachelor's degree until <laughs> I was 40 years old. Um, my mom had gotten sick. Um, she was originally diagnosed with cancer when I was 20, but then it came back um, years later. And when it came back, kind of full force, I had taken a break from college. So um, decided after she passed that I was going to go back and finish for her. So did that and graduated at the ripe old age of 40. Um, working with special needs kids, um, you know, passion of mine, my oldest nephew that I helped raise, he's um, on the autism spectrum. And um, I worked for a few years as um, a wraparound aide doing um, programming in the home and in schools with very young children with autism, a lot of nonverbal kids. I've been bitten and punched and kicked and all the things, but I minded none of it. Um, and then after I got my degree and I kind of followed my nephew as he got older, um, kind of into his stages. And now that he's 19, um, I'm working with that age group and I love it. I think that's where I want to be and where I want to stay. So helping them transition out of school and into adulthood. Man, that's that's incredible, and I can only imagine um, all the different things that go into that work, right? You know, like and just just how attentive you got to be to to each student, each person, um, but also like trying to kind of yeah, like you said, help them make that transition to the next stage of their lives. I guess like for folks listening to this, who uh, again like. Like, like with so many of the people that we talk to, like, this is just such essential work that we take for granted. It's like someone's doing it, but it's you. You're, you're one of the people doing it. Like, and, and could, I guess, could you just give us a little, like a little bit of a snapshot into like, like what that looks like to, to, to help students at that age get ready for the next step? Like, I guess what sorts of problems are they coming to you with or questions that you're being kind of asked to help them solve on a daily basis? Um, it varies a lot because we have quite a range of abilities, um, the students that come to us. Um, so I had a student that graduated last year who is now working when she started with us, um, she was very shy, very quiet, backwards. Um, we got her working one or two days a week at the local grocery stores, you know, helping stock shelves and things like that. And we job coached her while she was there um, until she was independent and could do it on her own. Um, and then her real passion was to work in a daycare and to be a, like a teacher's aide. So we helped her do all the online trainings that she would need. We did some job shadows at a daycare center to make sure it was really what she wanted to do. Um, we actually would do um, some kind of, um, sorry, I'm looking for. Um, 
Why is my brain blank? <laughs> Role-playing activities. That's what I was thinking of. Um, so we would have her, you know, reading a story to us and we would sit on the floor and act like a bunch of toddlers um, to show her how easily she could get distracted when she's doing those things. Um, she graduated last summer and is now working full-time in a daycare as a teacher's aide. Um, she just bought her first car and I'm so insanely proud of her. Um, and then we have students, you know, that's the ultimate goal. You know, if we can get a student to that point, um, but the students are maybe not capable of those things. We just help them. We have had local businesses carve out jobs specifically for our kids. Um, so if there's, you know, a pizza place um, that has one of our students who utilizes a wheelchair so he can't use the ovens and things like that. So he will weigh out the pre-portioned servings of you know the mozzarella sticks and things like that so he pre-portions all those things to be put in the freezer um so just a wide range of you know jobs that we get to help these kids learn and we've had kids who come in not having a clue what they want to do and by the time they leave you know they they decide for sure um so yeah it's it's very very rewarding it's frustrating at times too because we do have families who are not always on board and super supportive and responsive. Um, we have school districts because we work directly with the school districts. Um, most of the ones that I work with are very easy to work with. They want what's best for the kids. Um, but there are some that kind of push back a little bit because it is, you know, a financial burden to the school district because um, they're the ones that pay, you know, for the students to come to our services. So some of the districts want to, boot the kids out before we think they're ready to go. And so that's my job is to be the liaison between the family and the school and the student and um, kind of advocate as best I can for the kids and what's best for their future. Man, that's, that's incredible. That is, that is real important unsung work. And yeah, you mentioned the, the two words that were jump, jumping up and down in my head, frustrating <laughs> and rewarding. That's, that's the human that's service got, field. It's gotta be a healthy mix of both. <laughs> exactly. High stress, low pay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that was going to be my other question. Cause like, uh, and we don't have to get too deep into this, but it's like something that obviously comes up a lot on this show when I'm talking to other educators around the country, right? I think educators and healthcare workers are probably the two areas where I'm trying to like tell people is like, yo, like we've got a real crisis here of like overworking and underpaying our most essential workers. And they're like leaving the industries or like they're moving away because they can't afford to live where they work. Like this is a big problem and and it sounds like from what we've just been talking about that uh that's still a problem over it there is. Where yeah you my are. degree is not in teaching so i don't have you know some of the benefits that come with being an educator my degree is in human services and i work for a small nonprofit. so we really <laughs> don't even make you know teachers wages at this point so it's it's a career of passion not for um early retirement, that's for certain. And for those reasons, I work a second job to help, um, you know, put my kids through their sports. So. And you sleep when? <laughs> um, in about an hour, I'll go to bed. 
Yeah, so my day is about 7.30 a.m. to about 8.30 p.m. Man, that's wild. All right, Chris, you got, <laughs> you good to pick back up? Absolutely. Okay. So, so before, before you got uh, a frog in your throat, you were talking about, um, yeah, the, the doing the work that, that you do could vary on a day by day basis. Sometimes you're there till you get out at noon. Sometimes you're there till late at night. Um, but I remember when, when we did the live stream together, uh, you guys, me, and and the great Jeff Kurtz, uh, retired locomotive engineer. Uh, you guys listening know Jeff. We've we've had him on the show before. I've talked to him on the Real News before, and uh, I was so so excited. I mean, again, it feels weird saying that because we were all brought together under horrific circumstances, but I was still grateful for the opportunity uh, recently to have Chris and Jessica on a one of the Worker Solidarity live streams that I do at The Real News every other Wednesday with Jeff. And we were talking, you know, like together about how these greedy awful rail companies are like screwing over their workers and also the communities in which they operate. Right. And, but we haven't been bringing those two sides together as much as we should. So if you guys haven't already, I'm going to, we're going to link to it in the show notes, but go listen to that live stream that we did. Me, Chris, Jess, and, and Jeff, I thought it was really, really uh, illuminating. But one of the, the parts that really, really stuck with me was when Chris was like, after Jeff was talking about the, the, the cuts that the railroad companies have been making to their staff year after year, you guys, you know, I won't go into it again. You guys have heard me yell about this many times, but all of that cost cutting, all of that piling of work onto fewer workers for the sake of, you know, uh, cutting maintenance, cut, cutting things down to the bone so that everything goes into the pockets of executives and shareholders. And that leads to, you know, people not, uh, keeping up the standards of safety and operations that that they should thus leading to uh, avoidable catastrophes like the east palestine derailment and so chris was talking about that on the live stream about like in the line of work that you were doing like if you treated safety that way like you know you'd be dead like and, and I, so i just wanted to kind of ask you yeah, if you could pick back up about like just what goes into that work and uh, on a on a day to day basis? Like, what were the kind of things that you were confronting on that job? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the work I did was dealing with live gas. If you make a, a mistake, you're going to be dead. Okay, so we would have like safety meetings every day, every day, every day. We would have a meeting about. What are we going to do? How are we going to do? <clears throat> we have gone over 5,000 days without having an accident. Um, the company I work for is very proactive. Um, obviously, a lot more than Norfolk Southern because <clears throat> we would avoid anything that would hurt anybody in any way shape or form like if anybody if we ever got to a, a situation where 
we don't know what or how or who or whatever, you know, we would always stop. We'd call a boss. The boss would come out and say, do it this way, do it that way, anything, whatever it had to be to make sure that we all went home safe. We always went home safe. We always had a whole a whole huge thing about safety. Like nobody got hurt. And if your job <clears throat> didn't get done that day because you found something that was unsafe, you don't do it. When Norfolk Southern had a uh, a train car that was on fire for 20 miles. And, and it got radioed ahead and they still didn't stop it. That's on them. Like my job, like I said, we dealt with, with, with live gas. <clears throat> Everybody I've ever worked with has gone home safe. They're still living their lives. They're still doing everything they need to do because we are safe. Safety is number one with our company. And then you were also saying it was very physical. Oh, absolutely. Right? Good God, yes. Yeah, we, um, you're running 90 pound jackhammers. You got operators that are running backhoes and I mean we we were in the in the trenches picking out rocks not rocks boulders we're doing everything we had to do to, to lay a safe gas line patting it down with sand you know doing everything we had to do I mean it was <clears throat> How much would one of your hoses weigh when you were running the? Oh God, the, the 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 I ran a vac truck. That hose that we had to sling over our shoulders was at least two hundred and fifty pounds, at least minimally. Man, that's like, that's like throwing a, a linebacker over your shoulder. Basically, so yes, we all did it, and but we always looked out for anybody and everybody who had anything to do with anything. You know, like we always made sure everybody was safe. You, do you need a break? Do you need help? Anything, you know, which brings me back to like the railroad workers. Cause what, what are their safety restrictions? Right. I mean, like, and again, like that's like, you know, the, the, what we were screaming about, on the during the live show and then on the live stream right is like you know these these are the it's so stereotypical and it's like so um you know just just infuriating because it's one of those situations where it's like yeah these are the kinds of things that look good on a spreadsheet to an egghead jackass like you know sitting in like some new york office 
saying like, yeah, let's just uh, cut the the maintenance staff, you know, the maintenance of way guys, the guys who are checking the actual rail cars, the people who are looking at the bearings, the people who are making sure that those cars are safe to be on the rails. Let's cut them to the bone. Let's cut the uh, maintenance of way guys who are supposed to check the track and make sure that the track is safe for cars to ride on, right? <laughs> you know, like let's cut them down to the bone. Let's make the trains longer and longer and heavier and just pile them up with toxic chemicals, coal, whatever. And let's get those trains, those three mile long trains down to two people on, on the crew. Let's get, let's try to get it down to one, right? I mean, like this, this is just such a, a bonkers mentality to me because it's like, yeah, as we'll keep cutting. And as long as we can get away with it, as long as we push our workers to do like, you know, to kill themselves, to keep things moving. Um, and it's it for all intents and purposes, it seems like the system's working. Then we're then all these shareholders and executives are congratulating themselves. And then February 3rd happens and a Norfolk Southern train derails uh, and just a, a, a nightmare ensues. Um, an entire town has been turned upside down. That is what happens when all you care about is the bottom line, when all you care about is uh, increasing your, you know, shareholder dividends and stock buybacks and, and bonuses and all that crap. Um, and, you know, as Chris was saying, like, like it's I, I don't even want to say like in any other industry, those that kind of mentality leads to people getting killed. Because we're talking about the rail industry. That kind of mentality gets people killed in the rail industry, and it gets people – it puts us in situations like this where, you know, thankfully no one was killed in the crash of the blast. But, I mean, like, we're talking about just – just I don't know, like, so much – so many toxic chemicals that were spewed into the air, that have spewed into the water, leached into the soil, um, hanging on people's walls. We've talked about this over and over again on each new episode. Like, that is the cost of only caring about your bottom line. And, you know, it's it's that way lies disaster. So, like, we as people, we as workers, and we as community members— need to have more of a say in how these businesses run their business because we're the ones who have to deal with the effects of their mismanagement. Right. So um, what, what, yeah. what can we do about the railroad? They have their own rules and regulations. How do we do anything about that? Are you, I'm, I'm asking, asking you. Do you have an answer? I'm, uh, I'm asking you. Yeah, okay. What do we do? Um, no, I think... This is this is a fantastic question. And this is the question that I'm always asking each railroad worker that I interview is like, what do we do? Right. And so I think there are a couple things, um, you know, at the very base level to anyone listening to this, um, as I think I've said on every single interview that we've done uh, about East Palestine uh, and about the railroads, the first thing that you can do is not forget. That is the first thing you can do. Because like, at like and any other issue that you care about, doesn't have to be this one. It should be this one. But you guys know 
that any issue that you care about, the way that the system is set up, the way that the news cycle moves, the way that our attention spans have been conditioned uh, in the 21st century, you know, if, if legislators aren't like pushed and pushed consistently to actually follow through on their promises to communities like East Palestine, they're not going to do it. They're just not. If they if they can get away with not doing something, that's going to be their preference. So, for everyone listening, um, if you if you want legislative action, and again, this is you know me, Max Alvarez, editor in chief editor in chief of a five hundred one c three. So like I can't tell you like which legislation to support or which candidates to back, but what I can tell you is that the ones that you want are not going to get in if you don't fight for them, <laughs> and if you don't bring more people into that fight. And, you know, you don't hold electeds accountable um, and, and, you know, fight for them to, 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 you know, represent your interests. All right. Um, <clears throat> so I say that to say because, like, as we talked about with Jeff Kurtz, there was legislation proposed in the immediate aftermath of the February 3rd uh, derailment. Um, it, it was seeming promising. It was, it had bipartisan support and it has since gotten watered down and stalled to shit. Right. And because people have forgotten about it because people have stopped getting pissed off and like, you know, like we were in February, March, April, like people were railing on elected officials. They were railing on the media. They were keeping the pressure up enough that, you know, uh, uh these legislators actually felt like they had to put something on the table, but then like with everything else, we started to get distracted, right? And the pressure eased up and other priorities came about. So that's the first line of like, I think defense is don't forget about it. Uh, don't let that pressure, you know, off. Don't, don't, don't let the foot off the gas. The other thing is that the railroad unions, um, their contracts with the carriers are up in 2025. Um, so we actually are going to be entering a really pivotal year next year uh, where we could, you know, help mobilize the rank and file well in advance of the contract expiration date, much like the UPS Teamsters were doing, much like the UAW auto workers were doing to try to generate energy among the their rank and file among their base, because the more that it appears to the bosses that you have a mobilized, mobilized, motivated uh, um, <clears throat> group of workers ready to go to the mat, the more inclined they might be to to concede at the bargaining table. But also, as we saw, this is sorry, this is a long answer to your question. But as we saw last year with what Congress, <clears throat> both parties of Congress, scab Joe Biden and everyone else who conspired to crush the railroad workers strike, um, if we don't. The, the 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 rail carriers themselves also need to believe that the public is not going to be on their side and that the public is remembers what happened in East Palestine that the public remembers what happens with the potential rail strike in 2020 too. So all of this contributes to making emboldening workers across the 12 different rail unions to to fight harder, to have more of a strategy, to have more of an effort going into 2025 that says we're not going to be put in the same position that we were in 2022 and 2023. Sorry, now I'm <clears throat> sick and I'm losing my voice. Oh, yeah, I can hear it. 
<laughs> um, but here's the, so so there there are many other ways to to answer that question, but th- those are just kind of two that I think are really important to emphasize. But I want to then turn it back to you guys and ask, um, y- you know, if we could if we could talk about how things have been for you all since we were together at Harvard in September, and what people listening can do to help you and to help your community uh, in East Palestine. Um. Man, that, that's <clears throat> first of all, number one, don't forget. I, I know that and you, you spoke on it too, that that the media passes over everything, you know, like we, we were the, the hot topic for a little bit and now we're not. We're still here. We're still living this nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to use that word, but yeah, this nightmare. Um <clears throat> nothing has got better. Nothing has gotten better in any way, shape, or form. And I know you just asked us, first of all, do you have anything to say on that? Because I do have something I'm going to retort with. All right. So, Max, I, I really hate to put you under the hot seat right now, but if you were us and you're sitting at our table and you're dealing with, 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 with everything we've dealt with, you know, the heart condition, the the hotel, the the air, the soil, all that other stuff, right? But you don't. You don't have an out. This is going to be your life. You have to stay here right now. What are you going to do? What would be your answer for this? How do you deal with this? I don't know, man. I mean, I think I would be doing what you guys are doing in the sense of, and I want to like really commend you for doing that. Because, you know, as painful as it has been, as frustrating as it has been, um, you know, you you have made sure that and fought to make sure that your story is not forgotten and that your voices are heard. Um, getting in the New York Times, coming to coming out to frickin Harvard and sharing your story in a room full of law students uh, with a, a bald Mexican <laughs> dude with tattoos you never met before. <laughs> you know, like, what would you do if you were sitting yeah. here at this table right now? I don't think anybody knows what they do. In this I, I realize I know nobody does like we're doing the best we can. But I mean, like if you were in our shoes right now, the train tracks are right there. We hear the trains running every night. We've dealt with a, a lot of different things. You know, I'm still not back to work. I'm, I'm, I don't know how Christmas is going to happen right now this year. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you're me. What do you do? Like, how do you handle this? How do you deal with this? And now you have a lot of a lot more of a platform than what we do. We we've spoke, we've done a lot of different things for you know, but what do you do? How do you handle this? How do you deal with it? What do you tell your kids? 
what do you do for your life? Like, like how do you, how? You want to get down to the nitty gritty and, and the real of everything? This is the real. Like, what are we going to do? Well, Norfolk Southern, you know, claims that they're going to make things right, <laughs> but they're not doing what needs to be done immediately. You know, they put people up in hotels, <laughs> which was great for the time being, but now they've given um, notice that everybody who's been relocated has a certain amount of time to return home since they've finished the the digging and the remediation stuff. I mean, they're still working, but the big digging has ceased um anything beyond relocation expenses are not they're not going to admit that property was destroyed they're not going to replace any of that kind of stuff now that's a later litigation they're not going to help us financially with the fact that he's been out of work since april and his unemployment has run out and we're now down to less than half of our normal income to continue to pay our bills they're not going to help us pay those bills because that's admitting that their toxins caused his heart failure. They're not going to admit that. So we're left to struggle to figure out how to pay the bills, how to keep Christmas happening. So you know, how what do you do? Girls active and doing their, their regular daily lives. So what do you do? How do you, how do you do? Well, I mean, like, here's like the, the, I think the, like the the sobering answer that's on all of our tongues, right, is that the answer to like what can I do in that situation is nothing, like because that is the exactly. situation that you've been left with, right? They you've been you've had your lives upended. You've had the tracks that are literally like a stone's throw from where you are sitting yes. right now. So for everyone listening, like. There's no, there's no avoiding that. That massive death plume uh, that you, that we all witnessed uh, back in February, that was like, that was like ten feet from their house. You know, I'm, be, I'm exaggerating, but that was like right behind their house, and like so, the, and they're all live, and they're living there. Like after an event like that, how are you gonna sell your house? How are people just gonna pick up their lives and move somewhere else? This is what drives me nuts when idiots on YouTube are like, "Why don't you just move, <laughs> motherfucker? Have you ever tried to uproot?" Anyway, pardon my French, but like you know, like you guys, it, you, people can't do that, and especially they can't do that when. Uh, again, we're talking to living proof of a family that, you know, like can't go back to work because of the effects of this derailment. And that is stuck where they are, not only because of the roots that they have there, because people had a life that has been stolen from them by Norfolk Southern um, and that has been forever, forever changed by Norfolk Southern and by the government agencies that are supposed to help people like Chris and Jessica. So all of that. That has left you with effectively nowhere to go. And you also have uh, a po like politicians who are not listening to you, as we've discussed, media that will, you know, like only pay so much attention until the, the, the news cycle moves on, the need for clicks, you know, like gets driven to some other story, right? So, so my, I'm basically trying to divert the Chris's question to everyone listening. 
What can a person do in that situation? And I think it's a very similar kind of question to what working people at like exploitative, you know, like dead end jobs that they need because like they've got a they've got a family they got to pay the bills like this is the only place they could get hired i'm not directly equating the two but i got a point right when i talk to workers like that who you know like know that they deserve better know that they want better know that their boss is screwing them over and even breaking the law but also know that they will get fired if they speak up about it right um you know and and that the 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 since they don't have a union since they're not organized or what have you right like there's all that pressure to just stay quiet while everyone rips us off. And in that case, when that worker asked me, what can I do? It's kind of a similar answer. It's like, because of the way the law is structured in this country, because of how much power is in the hands of the bosses, an individual worker in that situation can't do much. But as we stress every week on this show, what we can do is what we can do together, right? What we can do is what we can do as a group, as 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 a herd, not just a lone, you know, not lone animals wandering the wilderness, right? So none of us are going to be able to change this on our own, but it's going to take an actual group effort and not just let all of this awfulness lie on the shoulders of people like Chris and Jessica who are being given no way out. So what are we going to do to help? That's the real question. What are we listening to this going to do to make sure that the people who screwed Chris and Jessica and their family over, that screwed East Palestine and the surrounding areas over, what are we going to do to make sure that they are held accountable and that this does not happen again? I'm not just asking that rhetorically. I am asking you listening to this now, what are you and what are we going to be able to do that's that's really I, I, and I hope that the way that that what you're hearing from Chris and Jessica is really impressing upon you the the urgency of us coming to an answer there because this can't we can't just let them languish in limbo. And the bad thing is, is we are, we are. You know, like you can reach out to everybody on your on 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 your podcast. You can reach out to everybody on the Real News Network. And I hope you guys hear this. This is real residents of East Palestine talking. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to handle this. We don't know what, what our next step is. We don't know how to do anything about anything right now. And that's the bad thing about this, is we don't know. Like, how do we handle this? What do we do? Like, we don't know anything about this. We have an attorney. But that's going to be down down the road somewhere. What do we what do we do for right now? Jesus, there's one of our dogs coming down the steps. So chasing the cat. That's better. I, I was worried for a second it was one of your kids. So is that still better? The dog tormenting the cat. <laughs> but. Like, what is our answer? Like, where do we go? We, we, we are still left in complete darkness right now. Like I said, I, I, I posed to you, Max, you know, what would you do if you were sitting here at this table? But I will pose that to everybody on this podcast, anybody who's listening. What do you do? 
we're we're getting no help from anybody. We I I've been out with without work since April right now, and and I don't know how Christmas is going to happen. I don't know how anything is going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen to us after Christmas. I don't know what's going to happen down the road. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to deal with it. Like it, it's. Do you have kids, Max? I have a foster daughter. Okay. <clears throat> do you know how much weight is on your shoulders for Christmas to make sure it happens and do all that stuff? And you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know. If I'm going to make it happen right now. Now Jess is working right now, but. I'm not, and I, I, I like, as a man, I don't know how I'm going to do things, and and I don't know where to go to, and I don't know, <clears throat> like I know Norfolk isn't going to do a goddamn thing. What I do know is that we're not going to forget about you guys, and that there are you do have friends, um, because I've heard people. And I've talked to people and I've read the messages of people who've reached out and said, man, that interview you did, you know, with the folks from East Palestine really touched me. Uh, Even if it's just like a little, you know, just like a two line thing. Thanks for doing that. Like that really meant a lot or I connected with that. So like it's it's tough because even even I as the host, right, like I put all these interviews out there year after year after year. And like you only get to hear from a tiny fraction of people. You know, you never really get to know how how many people it's impacting. Um, but I do know that we put this out there. And if we follow this up with a call to people, people will answer that call just like they did when I talked to coal miners in deep red rural Alabama, who just like you were saying, how are we going to provide Christmas for our families when they were on strike for two years at Warrior Met Coal? And it was the union, it was the the women's auxiliary, it was the community that came together and they like made a like a, a, a solidarity Santa thing that they did. We can do that. Let's fucking do it. I'm saying it right here on the podcast to everyone listening. You better watch this space because we got to make sure Santa comes out to East Palestine. But again, we also got to make sure that we don't forget about East Palestine. I can't say that enough times. Well, the bad thing is I'm not reaching out for that. I'm not reaching out for donations. I'm not reaching out for charity. Yeah, well, too bad. Uh, I'm I'm giving it to you, baby, because I want to give it to (laughs) y'all. Like, So so you got to get over that right now. But I get what you're saying. I do, man. I really do, which is why I'm insisting and saying that, you know, whether you like it or not, we're going to we're going to lovingly help. All right. Let me ask you this. What about the other families in town that have been infected? Exactly. You know, we're not it. There's a whole lot of people that have been affected by this. It's not just us. Um, we have neighbors a few doors down who own a small business right by the train tracks and they've not gotten assistance for their business um so they're affected doubly with you know living right here and their business being right here um they'll continue to park their muddy trucks in their parking lot um 
And they have unfortunately said at the end of this year, they're closing their doors and they're not sure if it's going to reopen. And they had just sunk a ton of money into remodeling. And they're really good people too. And a beautiful little venue, you know, selling wine. Um, they sell honey products. They didn't have their beehive this year um, because of the derailment. So their business and their home has just completely been affected. And from what I know, they're not getting a whole lot of help. So, I mean, there's there's tons of other families. I could go on and on, you know, but... Well, like I said, we're affected. We, we are definitely affected. But we're not the only ones. By no means are we the only ones. There's a whole town right now, you know? And some people are not. They've, they will tell you that they've not been negatively affected. You know, there's all kinds of arguments all over social media. There are people in town who will tell you to... Clean your house, suck it up, and move on with your life. Well, I cleaned my house. <laughs> I scrubbed the walls. I scrubbed the ceiling with hospital-grade disinfectant. We moved back home. But I can't do anything about the heart condition that he has already been given back in February. Until that gets remedied, we're, what, what do I do? we're screwed. <laughs> yeah, what do I do? We tried to to move on. We tried to clean the house and get our kids back in school and try to normalize things, but it's really hard to do when, you know, the breadwinner in the ha- in the family is down to zero, and we're on less than half of what we were living on previously. I told you before, like the job I did. Yes, it's very physical. Yes, it's this, it's that, but my job paid well and it gave great benefits as far as insurance and vacations and things like that i'm sitting at home every day right now and that freaking kills me i was looking to see if there's any kids but i was gonna drop the other word but it kills me I don't like this. I'm a worker. I want to work. That's my, that's what I do. I'm a worker. I have not been at work since April and it's driving me nuts. It's nice. Cause I can get my daughter on the bus every day, pick her up, you know, do things like that. I have time to do things around the house, but I want to go to work and I can't, I can't right now none of my doctors have been able to say that the trained derailment caused this but they've also not been able to say that it didn't cause it and that's the hard thing his cardiologist said there's a very strong likelihood and he was quoted in the new york times article putting that on record saying that he would be hard-pressed to say there was not a correlation so again how do you handle what we're dealing with? How how does anybody handle this? What do you do? Where do you go? We don't we don't have no idea where to go for anything. The EPA, <laughs> besides the fact that they came here after the New York Times was published, you know, they came here and said, Oh, we're here. Just let it, you know, what are, what are you going to do? 
we don't know anything right now. And that, that that's one of the hardest things right now is we don't know. It's almost a year, almost. But we don't know anything. My question for Norfolk is going back to like their safety regulations. They're investing a whole lot of money right now in building this facility to train first responders, which I think is great. First responders deserve all the training that they should have. They should know how to properly respond to. They didn't end. But I know what you're saying. Yeah, they're they're trying to train them for it. I'm sorry. Anyhow, <laughs> they're investing money in the training center to train first responders on how to respond to a derailment. Well, how about let's back that up and invest in not derailing in the first place? <laughs> yeah, that maybe have fewer derailments. How about that? We, we start there. And then the other thing is they were bragging in one of their most recent news things about this new drive-through thing that like scans the the train as it goes through and looks for you know repairs that need and alerts people to it. Guess what? We were alerted to the bearing on this thing. And, but if you don't respond <coughs> to the alerts and act on it, all this money that you're investing in that safe, you know, identifying dangerous stuff, I just, I don't understand. You're, you'll identify, but you don't act on it. So why are you investing all this money just to say that you invested all this money, but you're not investing it in the right places? Mm-hmm. And it needs to go back to the workers to actually repair the things that need to be repaired. 